What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Today's guest is someone who rejects normality in his pursuit to disrupt the hospitality industry. He's designed more than 200 unique hotels across the world, and I can say they're very unique as a super fanboy. He is a strong advocate for making the industry more sustainable and integrates environmentally conscious decisions into his projects. He's the author of the book, More Escapism, sitting up over my left or right shoulder, whichever way you guys are looking, but it's been there since I moved into my new barn studio. He is the director of Bensley Studios. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Bensley. Welcome, Bill. Thank you very much, Dan. It's a pleasure. It's the well, actually, I'm gonna say the pleasure is all mine. Um, having lived in Southeast Asia for a couple of months in 2018 with my wife and three wonderful children, we were based down in Ho Chi Minh, but every weekend, because everything is so dense there, we'd go up to Da Nang, we'd go up to Hanoi, we went out to Laos, we went uh, down to Singapore. And I think we must have stayed at about five or six of your properties. And I hadn't really heard of you before being out there. And I've been in the hospitality design world, mostly as a <clears throat> purveyor of furniture, but I'd never walked into properties like these properties in my entire life. And I got the feeling, and I know every project has constraints. But I feel like the projects that I had stayed in, there were very few constraints. I mean, you were just over the top creating these different worlds. Um, and so I'm a huge fan and the experience was incredible. That being said, before we get into all of that, I'd love to just ask, as I ask every guest, how do you define hospitality? I think that hospitality is sharing. And for me as a landscape architect, architect, interior designer, it's about sharing what I've learned about a particular place in which I'm building. So for example, you just mentioned uh, Da Nang, that before we even started Da Nang, the uh, intercontinental in Da Nang, we, we visited something like 25 different temples. And and I went and sketched for about, about two weeks. I sketched very, uh, very comprehensively what I thought was the most interesting corners of Vietnamese temples. And I used those, that inspiration then to, to be able to build um, a 158-room hotel. And it feels fresh and modern, but it's also deep. Uh, it also draws upon a deep history of architectural um, history. I think what's also interesting is many of the friends and clients that I have who design hotels. I think it, back in the in the in the recesses, they all and I do too aspire to be a hotelier. So like it's really interesting and like really worthy to note that not only. Are you an architect, landscape architect, and interior designer? But you also are a hotelier. So, yeah, how does how how do you define hospitality as a hotelier? 
They define hospitality as a hotelier also as, as sharing. And the reason that I became a hotelier is, is really just to have the apparatus in which to share uh, the good things that come from out of hospitality. For example, this project that we've done at Chintamani Wild, it is, sits on the, the southern portion of the Hardeman National Forest, which is in the southern part of, of uh, Cambodia. It has, every single day, it has hundreds of people that are poaching and taking illegal woods. And, and what, I want to, what I want to do by building a small 15-tent hotel is to be able to then share the future of this beautiful property for Cambodia's kids, to be able to, to, be able to conserve it. I'm very much a conservationist. So mm-hmm. by taking a hold and being the, how to say, the caretaker of this property, at least for a couple, few more years while I'm alive, <laughs> is that I'll be able to share with the future uh, uh, citizens of Cambodia probably one of the best, most beautiful corners of their country. Mm. And by, by, by making enough money to be able to police it, to preserve it and conserve it for hopefully eternity. And I'm just curious, in Cambodia, what kind of flora and fauna are, is being poached and harvested illegally? Is it, is it teak? Um, yeah, no, the teak disappeared a long time ago. Oh, yeah. And, I, and the rosewood disappeared a long time ago. So now it's basically anything and everything that, that the villagers can get their hands on. But most importantly, it is the, the wildlife that's there. Oh, the, so okay. we, yeah, like for example, um, the cardamom rainforest, we used to have wild tigers there, but in, in, in the year 2003, the last ones were shot. Oh man. Um, the, we used to have a lot more wild elephants than we do now. We still have some wild animals that pass through our property, hmm. but there's also, uh, mammals like the pangolins. Binturongs is beautiful big cats and the clouded leopards. Mm. And even a clouded leopard, you know, very close to my property was caught in a snare about four months ago and, oh, no. and died. Oh, that's a shame. So, um, yeah, the snares, the snares uh, are something that's very dangerous. And the, the villagers living around the park, they place many at one time. In fact, since we've been there, in the last six years, we've picked up over 14,000 snares. Holy shit. Holy that's, shit. That's crazy. It's crazy. And, and, yeah, and, they're, so in, and they're so indiscriminate as well. It's, um, it's horrible. Exactly. They can catch anything. Yeah, I've seen the effects of that um, in Africa, um, out on safari, and I haven't actually seen an animal with a wound, but like leading up to it and doing research, you see all how indiscriminate and terrible – um, all of these snares are. I don't want to go, go down that road, but I appreciate um, that you are conserving. And does that conservation, because you you started off as a landscape architect, correct? Was that your beginning? That's that, that's correct. I have an undergraduate in landscape architecture from Cal Poly. Oh, okay. So from San Luis Obispo? Cal Poly Pomona. Oh, Pomona. Okay, cool. Um, so, 
I'm curious because one of the things that I notice in traveling to, whether it's Da Nang or Fukuok or the Rosewood out in, um, in Laos, um, the landscape stepping onto the property, it's like you're, I'm going into a journey somewhere else. And I think, um, I don't know if that's a virtue of, I'm, I'm sure it's both, but like just what can grow down there and the scale that you're able to work with. Do you start with the landscape first and then think about everything else? Or do you have a process of, do you start interior, exterior, landscape? How do you approach a project? Is there any similarity? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question, Dan. And and I'm, as you may well uh, guess, uh, a lot of our projects, are we are given beautiful, absolutely untouched natural sites. So... The key is to be able to understand the idiosyncrasies, how Mother Nature has been operating there, how, how, the, how the sites drain, how they take on the sun in the morning, where the winds come from, and so forth, to understand the idiosyncrasies of that, that, that microenvironment. And then it's the attitude, mm. the attitude of the architect. My attitude as being a landscape architect first and an architect second is that no matter what I do, no matter what great idea I have in building architecture, it's never going to be as good as what Mother Nature has given us. So my job, 100%, is to mitigate damage. So basically, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're approaching these verdant, I guess more often than not verdant, um, bucolic, incredible landscapes and re reforming them. No, so you, that's no, not reforming. Not reforming. Okay. Not reforming. Understanding. Thank you. To the nth degree to understand them and to live on the site and understand everything about the site before you even think about what you're going to, what you're going to do to build on the site because I believe, even though I'm a pretty darn good architect, no matter what I put on that site, it's never going to be as good as what Mother Nature has already given us. Mm. So I want to put on something that's very light and, and does not interfere with how Mother Nature has been operating there for the last million years. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And then, <clears throat> okay, so then you're really listening to the land, and what yes. Mother Nature is throwing at you. <clears throat> then you yes. mentioned you mentioned Danang. Um, now, being sketching out the corners of these really ornate Vietnamese temples, which tend to be typically very ornate, right? And then, right. I, but I would say what struck me about Danang was, well, first of all, I have just the fondest memories of my three kids sitting at the window in those little pajamas they give with the monkeys out on the roof approaching them, and I have some great pictures <laughs> I'll put up here. So, like. Thank you for setting the stage, the set and the setting for like that really powerful memory for me. Um, but I also found as over the top as that property is, there's also a real subtlety to it and just like sublime beauty overlooking the South China Sea or um, and just with, with all the life and the fauna, the flora, it's... I'm actually surprised you said you would do it by sketching the corners of Vietnamese temples. Cause when I contrast that to like the JW and Fuquak, um, 
that place is over the top and really ornate. And it's like you're transplanted almost into or transported into almost like a, a Harry Potter Hogwarts world of what is that? Lefrac or <laughs> something university. And, but they're, they're so Lord. diametrically different, right? Right. The, the, what really works about that, about intercontinental and Denang is that, is that what permeates the most strongly in that project is the bay itself. It's these two big peninsulas of, uh, of hillsides that come to this from the south and from the north, looking out towards the east in this big open ocean. That permeates throughout every single corner of the hotel. Mm. So that, that is, we how to say, the architecture once again became secondary. And I made it very clear that I wanted the, the natural beauty of the site to be primary. And that is still today the primary um, impact that, that people come away from that project with. Yeah. And, and I just, I remember having breakfast in those pods, hanging out over that bay, seemingly just floating, almost like a, I was in a bird's nest. Um, it's, a, it's a Vietnamese hat turned upside down. Oh, see, I didn't even know that. Okay. <laughs> now at looking at all of the, like at all of your properties <clears throat> that I've been to, one of the really interesting surprises that I get is and I could be in the corner of a bathroom. I could be somewhere. It's like looking down in the corner up in these places that you wouldn't expect. You find so much surprise, whether it's the tile work, the millwork that's built in there, um, just all of the different elements of decoration, like in, at the Rosewood, all those little elephants. At, I forget the name of that bar, but I don't even know where you found all those elephants or carved all those little elephants. But there's just all of this surprise. It's almost like those those pieces of those artwork online where you, you see a scene and then you drill down to the book they're reading and then it zooms into that scene and then you drill down and you zooms into a whole other world. <laughs> and that's where I, uh, so again, like having working in North America on projects, I just find we have so many constraints here and I don't want to say you don't have constraints, but like I get the feeling that you're the, the palette that you're armed with in tackling most of the projects that you're on, it seems to be unlimited. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Wow. It's like yeah. you, it's like you have a dream canvas. Right. Yeah, pretty much. You know, we were given a, uh, oftentimes we're given a budget. And as long as I, I stay within that budget, pretty much more or less that I can do what I like. And that's what, clients like so how do you go about because there must be a mutual attractiveness to finding an owner or ownership group that really believes in you and your abilities and and your your ability to transform how do you find this how do you approach that where you find that mutual attractiveness that they that they really stand behind you well there's lot there's lots of you know in any in any particular um, any particular year, you know, it, what, normally once a, once a week, three times a week, five times a week, we're asked to do a new project. So it's about this mutual uh, dating, you know, yeah. at the beginning. And, and most people that are asking us to do a new project, they kind of know what they've been to Da Nang and they've been to, 
you know, the Capella Ubud and so forth. And they, they know that, that layering of artwork that I do. They know that, that Bensley ain't going to be cheap. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, they, they get it already. So I don't have to do a lot of education. Mm. Now, I've also heard, and I've also heard that walking, I don't know if it was with an owner or someone I know, but you may have been walking a site somewhere early on, and as you're talking, jump into a pool while talking to them. Is that true? <laughs> I don't remember that one, but it could very well be true. Uh. <laughs> I, the first time I went into Nat Danang on the beach, I was with my client and uh, the, Dr. Chang. He's a good buddy of mine now. In fact, I just had dinner with him last night. I went skinny dipping in the in the in the in the ocean. Yeah, it was and he we, he still kids me about that before any site work. Before any site work, and so, I do that for every single beach project that we do, just to sort of bless the. It's something. It's a ritual of mine. So yeah. Well, it also must really connect you to the site, like you were talking. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Exactly. So for all the designers out there, when you're approaching a new site, like definitely disrobe and connect with the and site. And jump in. And jump in. Absolutely. Yes. With your heart leading. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I'm also curious about in your process when you, okay, so after you jump in at a, at a beach property, or others, you you mentioned earlier you would stay on site. Are you staying in a tent? Uh, yes, yeah, I stay in a tent, and then I, I put up, um, I put up uh, temporary tents, and then I, I bring in big drawing tables, and then I'll actually draw and sketch on site. Wow! Uh, just to be able to understand the, as I said, the idiosyncrasies, and and and, and get some initial thoughts down, but. Yeah, it's about really understanding the site before you do anything with it. And then with Shintamani Wild, I think you said there's 15 tents, but they're like super tents, right? I, I've seen the pictures. They're really thick gauge. Like they're like structures, almost like a treehouse. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are you staying in a tent like that or are you in a, like a Coleman tent that you're rolling out with some folding tables? Now it's a now it's a uh, pup tent, up, just a pup tent, just a single man pup tent, yeah, that you can put on your back. And I do that every every summer in 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 Mongolia. I go up to go up fishing for two uh, months, and I'll, I'll I'll sleep in a tent up there and do long walks and horseback riding for maybe three hundred kilometers per, per per summer. Really, that that's what I really enjoy doing. I really, no phone, no nothing, just get away from it all. So I've been driving, my son is uh, 13 and uh, 14, huh? he just turned 14. And we dri I drive him to all these sport events everywhere. And I like, uh -huh. it's just like my job. I'm an Uber driver. But <clears throat> one of the things we do to pass the time is listen to audiobooks. And I, I we're in the middle of this trilogy or tetralogy about Genghis Khan and the yurts. You're staying in your own tent. You're not in Mongolia. You're not staying in like a big gur or a big yurt. Uh, it's, it, in some in some places we do, we but that moves with us on the boats as well. The, the gear is going to move, and we unpack the gear and it moves on onto a, a raft, and then we take that down the river. Wow. Okay. So moves. With us. So this is really important. You you this is a ritual of yours every summer. 
for the last eight years now. This summer will be my ninth. Okay. I'm, I was talking about this recently with someone about the need to disconnect and recharge. And I think all of us are so busy um, in our lives that it's really difficult to do that. And we have to make a concerted effort. What was, what drove you eight years ago to start that ritual for yourself? And what do you get out of it? Um, it they, what, what drove me to do that, it's, it's the best fishing in the world. It wasn't necessarily to disconnect. But that's a byproduct that I've learned to appreciate as opposed to uh, as opposed to get freaked out about. Right? Mm. Uh, and, it, and it's so wonderful. And every year I always go with my my staff, my Thai staff and friends and such. And and we actually talk to each other and and for hours and hours we'll play cards and and really connect. And it's so surprising how 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 much difference it makes. And then when you get back to the airport, you know, a month later and there's Wi-Fi, and everyone stops talking to each other and everyone concentrates on a piece of plastic. It's just the funniest thing. So you're there with friends and staff and going around in these mobile, in these GERs and you're almost like a, your own Bensley horde going and right. catching fishing. <laughs> Genghis Khan horde, yeah. Yeah. Catch and, oh, catch wow. And release. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> um, and then what? What about the fishing is so good there? Is it? Are they just like big sturgeon? I, I envision like these prehistoric, prehistoric giant fish, or are they just like trout that we would have in North America? Well, they, there is a, a land, a land-based uh, salmon, salmonoid family. It's called a taimen, and in in uh, in China, they used to they used to have them there. It's extinct there, and so, and these these taimen will run to five foot, six foot long, so they're huge. But then there's also trout, and uh, and, and that average is something like twenty two inches or so. Wow! And I my record in one day for twenty two inch trout is eighty eight. What? <laughs> oh, as you're talking, I think it might be the time. And is that the one where you actually could, like, if you're using a fly rod, you would use like a, like a mouse or some like mammal. Like you, they take big bait, right? Yeah, yeah, we use rats. Oh, rats! Wow, so those are huge yeah. monsters. Yeah, about six, six, eight inches long. Yeah, it's a, uh, uh, a wet fly. Oh my god! That gosh. that pops along the surface like it's trying to get away. Hmm. We use that when the the water's uh, muddy, but but we, yeah we, we use a number of different oh wow flies. You, we might have to do an in person recording there, um, and I <laughs> I might I might invite myself to come sit with you. Um, I've always had a dream <laughs> to go to Mongolia. Um, yeah, it's pretty nice. So for most of the properties that I would look at in your book um, online, the ones I've experienced, they seem to be in very lush environments. And I want to share, uh, we share a mutual friend, um, Namgal, um, who was involved with the um, Shintamani Mustang, and which just opened. And I, I've known him for years. And he, you know, having this hotel be redeveloped and open in the midst of COVID, there, it's not a lush environment. It's in the foothills of the Himalaya, right? And to go from what it was 
through COVID, open, and then pretty much immediately land on the cover of Condé Nast. Um, that just sounds like an incredible um, alignment of the planets to have all that happen on that project. Right. But how, right. as a lands approaching the landscape first, you can't really do much. Or I'm I'm probably wrong, but like there's not a lot to do with the it, with the landscape there because it's it's almost like a moonscape. Am I wrong? Um. Well, you know that. Our our neighbors in the village of Marfa they they planted a lot of apples, and we planted we've also planted apples and and while the soils are really rocky, as long as you keep it irrigated, they will grow, but they'll grow very slow. But mm. they, they're producing apples there and down in Marfa. It's a little bit more protected than our site. Okay, and then with the brand of Shintamani, um, how did you? How did that come to be? You're working on all of these other properties for others, and then Shintamani rolls around. How did, what was the genesis of Shintamani? The, the genesis was that in, back in 2000, and 2000, they had a fellow named Sukun Chanprida, who is uh, a Thai a Cambodian, uh, the nicest man in the world, I call him. And he asked me to, to design his hotel in Siem Reap, and it's called the Hotel de la Paix, to replace the bullet pocked hotel of Hotel de la Paix, which was built around the 1920s. And it, was, it had been shot up by the Khmer Rouge. And so even when we were there, you know, the, the Khmer, you could still hear the gunshot of the Khmer Rouge. So we, we worked on it, and we opened this project, this Hotel de la Paix, beautiful hotel, in about 2004. But... When we opened that, there was no other hotels in Siem Reap. There was nothing there. So we had to, to look for people to work in the hotels because nobody could, nobody knew how to, to cook, you know, in, in, in a reasonable Western sort of way. No one knew how to make beds because there were no beds, right? And, and nobody knew anything about hosp hospitality. So... Uh, we had a, we were staying in a little tiny house and we had a couple of rooms there where we were all staying there and we had you know, a few maids and whatnot. So we decided in, within our own kitchen is to start training kids. And we did. And after about a year or so, we had, we had uh, enough people to be able to open the doors of Hotel de la Paix, which by the way, is now Park Hyatt. And, and we, we kept that uh, we kept that hospitality, even though we had enough people working for us, we kept that open. And because we didn't have the heart to, to close it. For example, Dan, the first year that we said we were going to open up a school and, the, and you could, we would put you up, <clears throat> we would uh, uh, feed you and clothe you and give you the books and teach you something and for a whole year. Um, and we have 35 positions, we had over 2,000 kids show up. Whoa. In order, in order to. Yeah. And the hardest part, you know, over the first 10 years was basically saying, no, no, you can't. And so we just picked the poorest ones. Last, about no, two weeks, two, two uh, months ago, now we had our first reunion. We should have done this a long time before. And we had one of the guys that was in our very first year. 
And he was, we found him, he was in the dumps in Phnom Penh, and he was only about 17 years old, but he was eating, actually eating garbage to stay alive. Oof. And today he went through our pro project. Today he's a manager of a hotel in Singapore. God bless him. No way. So, yeah. so you created this brand, you birthed this brand, Shintamani, and, and as an offshoot of that, and I'm sure it's like from these experiences, like the one you just mentioned, um, you started a foundation out of this. Yeah, it just sort of morphed into that, but not in a very formal way. But now I, I really want, now I'm really wanting to, to get it going, get it, getting it, get it going. So since, since COVID started, I've learned how to paint mm. and I, I love painting. I adore painting. And every day I get up at six o'clock in the morning, I'm out in my studio here at the house. And I'm painting, and on the weekends, I'll paint 12 hours a day. And last spring, um, I had one of my first shows at the MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art here in Bangkok. Within 22 hours, it was sold out. And, and I'm so thankful to all the people that support us. The last, last year for the foundation, via my paintings, we've made over a half a million dollars. No way. And so every single cent way every single cent goes into um one conservation the support of this this private army we've got 158 people carrying ak-47s 24 7 in order to protect this very large piece of property called the cardamom rainforest and then then the the housing around sim rip and so forth is absolutely horrible some kids some families of eight will live in a place not not bigger than not any bigger than two king size beds mm. with a leaky plastic roof. So we've built so far about 150 homes that they can they're up on stilts and so forth. Wow. We've supplied something like over a thousand bicycles for kids to get to school. We're we are have started a program for milk milk for mothers because a lot of times that moms who are or many mothers under 22 already have five or six kids, right? So, and they, they have to stop feeding, uh, breastfeeding at, at age three months yeah. so that the kids start eating rice and water. And that's, the, that's what they have for the rest of their life. So there's a lot of stunting and malnutrition. So that this program that we're doing for Milk for Mothers is, is a really good one for the, the villages that we do. And of course, you know, there's villages that we have, basically there's no toilets. So everywhere you go, I hope maybe horrible to say it's open defecation hmm. so that the groundwater mixes with sewage in almost every situation. And then you add DDT on top of that. Yes, people are still using DDT because huh. it's the cheapest thing. Proper. And then you get this cocktail that's, that's ruining the kids' brains. Oh, my God. So, so that one of the big things we've done now is we've distributed something like 5,000 water filters besides building uh, wells and so forth. Because when I first got there, you'd have kids would have to go 10 kilometers to pick up the, enough water in order for the household to operate. Then they had mm. no time to go to school, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that requires focus, your time and dinero, right? So, right. <clears throat> Was that your first big fundraiser? Was selling your paintings, or how are how are you 
what are what are the way if people are listening and want to learn more and or potentially give money? What, what's a good way to do that? Well, they, we we have a, a website called Chintamani Foundation, and there's certainly the the ways in order to um, donate donate money. And the good thing is that we have this tax exemption for Americans. It's called five hundred one three C five hundred one C three. Yeah. So they're oh, C three. So right. I can make a donation after we speak, and then I can submit that with my taxes. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, it, and, and everything, Dan. I want to add too is that every single penny that that you would send us goes towards something in the field. All of the administration costs, hundred percent of administration costs, comes directly out of my pocket. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, so uh, that's uh, that's actually really admirable because most of the times with many uh, nonprofits, a huge percentage of that will go to ad- administration. So you're actually funding all of that and you're allowing all of that money to be distributed right to the people who need it. 100%. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it always will be. Wow. And every single painting that I, I do, for example, I will ask the, the buyer of the painting what would you like this money to go to? So the average painting that I do is maybe $6,000. Okay. That $6,000, Dan, will buy two houses in Cambodia or will send two kids, two kids to school for a whole year. Wow. So I asked my, ask my, client, my clients, what would you like to support? They say, oh, I want to build a house. Then I'll take a picture of that house. I know I'll take a picture of my, that painting that they bought and I, I will put it on that house and then give them the geo point. And I'm going to, I will make it, I make a, a video every single house that we've done when the family's moving in with the big smiles, right? And their wow. name, their painting, et cetera. So everybody that makes a contribution feels like they own it. And then I've had p- people that come out and say, where's my house? We want to go see my house. So I've got, we got, we get in the car and we go out and show them, right? So they really feel as though they're part of what of doing something good, and they are. That's amazing. Um, uh, we'll put links to your paintings also out there. And I know, like my wife, as much of a fan of you that I am, uh, my wife is a bigger one, and she's super duper <laughs> excited. So I'm not going to let her listen to this because I'm going to buy a painting for her that we're going to oh, put God, up here. Yeah. So we'll we'll do that. We'll do that after. Um, um, so if you were to look at the foundation as your business, you're working on, you said like, I'd forget one of multiple a month clients are coming to you to design their hotels. You, one of the things that I'm not good at, <clears throat> but we all get better at, I hope as we get older, because time is our most valuable asset. How do you start saying no to, to projects and shift your focus more to the Shintamani foundation? Like how, how, how have you found that balance? Because I, I can see how much I see how much the work you do that made you who you are excites you and invigorates you. I'm, it's it's coming through the internet like all over me. And then uh-huh. also the uh, <laughs> the the uh, on the Shintamani Foundation. Just hearing you light up, it's like that's also filling you up and it's also um, invigorating you. So how do you, how are you navigating this from from here to eternity? Well, I, I, I look at yeah, my work with Shin and Money Foundation as my night job and my weekend job and my, my architecture and hospitality design as the day job. Um, but I'm, 
I am definitely um, going, spending more and more time towards Shintamani Foundation. Definitely mm. sure, because, you know, I've built a lot of palaces and a lot of beautiful places, but you know what? It's a lot more heart filling when I build a $3,000 home and mm. a family of eight moves into it. Wow. Wow. It's a lot. It's a lot. It feels a lot better. I can, <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine. Um, <clears throat> Every single time I go to Cambodia over the last few years, you know, it brings tears to my eyes, but, you know, two, two or three times a day, you know, be, just because the, it takes so little, so little to change lives. Yeah. Right? So very little <sighs> compared to what we have, Dan. Mm-hmm. Really? A hundred percent. Yeah. Like in the developing world, dollars go so much farther and have such a an outsized impact compared to what we're used to in the United States or North America right. or Europe. It's it's really unbelievable. And um, to be able to direct it directly to those who need it without the leaky air, so to speak, um, right. of all the administrative costs and really have an impact is pretty incredible. So I'm as I walk away from this, I'm just going to, I'll think of it about things like maybe we could do a do a show or do something to bring um attention to the shintamani foundation because i think that that is really admirable and thank you for sharing i mean that's incredible well you um, know what's really cool about is that i do you know baker furniture i'm sure you do yeah baker mcguire furniture well yeah. they approached me a few months ago and they've given me a gig to design furniture no way okay? and and the great thing about it is that as a, as a designer, you usually get between 2 and 3%. Mm -hmm. I, I said, I want 10%. But 10%, 100% of that 10% goes towards the Shintamani Foundation. Wow. Okay. Also, I've said the same with the, uh, RH, uh, Restoration Hardware. Do you know them? Yeah. Yeah, they've said the same thing. So that they're that I'm going to do a gig with them, and then also Jim Thompson. They do a lot of silks and such. Oh yeah, silk. Yeah. They they do really beautiful fabrics. They they said the same thing. They'll give us ten percent, but that all goes towards the the foundation. So that that I think that when those pro when those products come out next year. At a place called High Point in in North Carolina. Yep, I've heard of it. Yeah, I've never been there, but yeah, that's what they told me. That when that comes out, then we should really be able to start uh, making an impact and, and getting some some serious some funds together, which would be wonderful. Oh, that'll be awesome! I wonder if you can get some other um, promotion from the people that run it. Um, I I know someone I could probably put you in touch with as well um, that runs that whole operation it runs what there. high point like the the world market it's vegas high point we'll talk about that offline um okay but, but that'll be that's really incredible that you're doing all of that um and i'm glad to share that it takes so, a lot of time yeah <laughs> um but it's also you're directing you're you're putting your efforts to build something else that you love and that's really giving back and and impacting lives of others. So that's really resonating with me. And um, I think we can all do a better job and allocate more time and effort 
to that. And it, it could be to Shintamani. It could be to something that we hold near and dear. It's just being involved in our communities and giving back. And yeah, well, uh, thank you for sharing. I, I had no idea. Um, I want to go back into your, your process for a second um, uh-huh. on the, on the design side. Is it true that most of your drawings are still hand drawn? Most of our drawings still look hand drawn. Look hand drawn. Okay. Right. And the, every single, how to say, every single design element is, starts with hand drawn mm. idea, something that's hand drawn. And that uh, every single person that comes into my studio is. I, I won't even look at what they have in their portfolio. I will ask them to draw that Ganesha that's sitting over there next to the wall. And that's the standard. And I can tell within five minutes if that person is going to work at Bensley or not. Wow. Because it's the way they start. And because no matter how good he is on the computer, if he can't use his, if he doesn't have a good hand-eye coordination, he'll never be able to to fit into or be a really good designer, I think. Well, I think a lot can be said that because it's so tactile. I love hand, hand-drawn um, notes when I'm writing things. I find if I type mm-hmm. something, I'm not remembering. There's some kind of a tactile yes. um, timestamp. Yes. It's like a timestamp to that moment of when I'm remembering. And it help, it's like a mnemonic device, much in the same way that you like, you're jumping in the water before you start a project. You're really, you're, you're imprinting your body into that site and you're getting feedback <laughs> from it. Right. But I do feel like, um, just being able to write things and write like all this madness, uh-huh. it just, it, it ties me to this moment in time. So when I look back at this, I'll remember our whole conversation, but mostly the feeling, I think that's what it is. It, you're able to convey the feeling through your, through your body into whatever you're it's, imprinting. Right. Whenever I'm, I'm teaching architecture and teaching to the kids that come through the offices that I'll always say, you know, throw away your handphone, throw away that, and then only take paper and pencil with you on vacation mm. because it's those things that you sketch are those things you're going to remember. If you take 5,000 photographs with your iPhone, you're never going to remember anything that's on Yeah. It's interesting you say that too, because oftentimes we'll go away on a vacation and I remember doing it at your properties. We would go with uh, like a little Strathmore um, postcard book, right? Uh, Uh So there's, I don't know, 50 pages and then with um, watercolors and we'll watercolor kind of what we're seeing. And it really looks Uh almost nothing like what we're looking at, but actually it does a little bit as we get better. But the... um, even though it might not be a a, a realist Im- capture of what what I'm looking at, it always brings me back to that feeling, and then I can send it to people, and it's like they're getting a little bit of the feeling I'm experiencing as I send it to um, friends and family. That's very cool, and your kids do that too. Yeah, uh, it's a little oh, it's it's harder cool. to get them to do it as they get older, um, but we're mm-hmm. actually we're go- we're going to Japan on Thursday, and I'm going to repack that stuff and make them do it because now you've inspired me to <laughs> lean into it a bit more. They, you know, last weekend and right now actually is Tet in, in Vietnam. And I was at Da Nang and I was doing, I did uh, three days of, of teaching, but one of my favorite things to do is teach children how to paint. 
Oh, really? Because they really, I, I really just love watching how kids will pick up this and pick up that color and do this and and are totally inhi- inhibited, inhibited. Uh, and I, I find that that is so, so cool. And then I take all of their paintings and then we make one big painting out of all of their paintings. And mm. the kids just love that stuff. Wow. And I love working with them because I feel like all the time, I feel like I'm one big kid. That's awesome. Okay, so then I, what I'm going to do is when you're in Mongolia, I'll show up with my three kids and we can have a we'll have a painting session. It'll be amazing. There you go. <laughs> I like it. So as as we're kind of rounding the end here, um, you mentioned Jim Thompson Silk, um, and you live in Bangkok. So right. I've I've been to Bangkok a couple of times, and I went to the Jim Thompson house. What's your theory on what happened to him? Because he disappeared. No one knows. There's a lot of conspiracy around it. Do you have any uh, any ideas? Um, you know the the uh, the yeah. I've talked to everybody about that too. In fact, also his biographer. I'm living in at the uh, the house where his biographer used to live. The Jim no Thompson's. kidding. So that, but he. He absolutely has no idea as well, um, even though you know that that they had intimate relationships and in, mm. in back in the sixties. Uh, but I, I figure, if I had to guess, I figure somebody knocked him off. Really? But yeah, mm. I figured that, and, and it wasn't the CIA. No, but I, something more I simple. That, yeah, I think much something much more simple. Yeah. Well, I, if- I think. It, there's a love triangle or something like that. That's what I would guess. Ah, uh, okay. Well, if anyone is ever in Bangkok, I really recommend it. I've, I've, oftentimes you'll go to these uh, museums, but it's really his, it's a, like a traditional Thai house and it's frozen in time. And it is, yes. it is incredible. Like papers are still on the desk and um, it's pretty incredible. Um, <clears throat> it is. As you're looking forward into all the projects that you're working on, Bill, and the Shintamani Foundation, what's exciting you most about the future? Um, you know, as far as as far as um, projects are concerned, we're doing a, a really great uh, conservation project in the north of Congo, in the in the French Congo, of all places, not DRC where it's very dangerous. French is, is smaller and to the west. And we're doing it in a place called the Tri-National Park, being Tri-National being Congo, Central African Republic, and then the French Congo. And it's right at the confluence of, confluence of, those, three, of those three countries. And if you've ever seen the, the program Our World with David Attenborough. It's oh, yeah, he's amazing. Program. And there's one, there's one um, episode called Forest. And... It, David Attenborough helicopters into this this opening amongst the, the rainforest. The rainforest goes on for miles, and he says, "This is the, the greatest wild love rainforest left on the on the planet." And this is Billy Boy, and I'm here um, with the the gorillas and the elephants, and they're they are having cocktails here at five o'clock in the afternoon. Look over there, there's 27 gorillas. Look this way, there's 47 elephants. That, well, that's belly by, and that actually is a place, and that is my site. 
wow. where I am doing a very small four, uh, uh, four accommodations and something like $4,000 per person per night. So it's really low impact, but high yield. And then that, like Shintamani Wild, will, will generate enough money for rangering. And that's what conservation is all about. It's about getting enough people on the ground on your side. Mm. And also creating a, almost an economy of having people come and appreciate what's being conserved and, and funneling money and creating a, an economy around that rather than yes. um, making it more beneficial to serve others and help usher in that experience than poaching. And Correct. I also, I also understand the poaching because like people are hungry and like, but there hasn't, there's, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a really delicate balance that needs to be continued to be pushed. And I'm glad you're on the vanguard of that. You know, it, it's, it's beyond that, Dan. It's not necessarily that people are hungry. They have to, they have to, they have to eat because there's, there's enough now that malnutrition and, and, and starvation is not part of Cambodia's mm. current picture. It's about greed and the, for example, a, a pangolin, it's a small anteater, this, you know, it's size of a bigger, just bigger than the football that will people in China, people in Vietnam are paying $450 for a pangolin mm. to eat. And so that they, and they're endangered, right? Because yeah. they figure that it'll make their sex better or something i don't know but right through across the board there's a big there's a big market still for for wildlife and people want to eat that or take parts of the the bears and so forth and and it's all just based on stupid you know, stupid superstitions but it's greed it's not it's not starvation it's not need to put something in your belly mm. if that was the case i would understand i totally agree and yeah, I don't know how to fix that. I like there's some almost intractable human, I guess the opposite of equality that, um, greed being one of them, one of the sins. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know how to change that, but I guess you change it with one drop of water. One drop of water becomes the, um, the waterfall. you know, right. So you're well, a very big drop of water. What we're doing this year, what we're starting this year is a, is a program for the villagers that live around the, live around the park, live around the cardamom rainforest, is that we're doing a, a bamboo growing program. And they get seed money to take their pieces of property to build bamboo. And then as an architect, I know very well that uh, cross-lamination timber, timber is going to be the way of the future mm. in that timber and cross lamination is actually stronger than steel and the building industry creates one of the is like one of the greatest pollutants creates more co2 than even cars and, and airplanes so if we can replace steel by way of bamboo and the lamination of it then that's a big future i'm doing a a, a super high-end ski resort in hokkaido right now oh that is all cross laminated timber and it's also fireproof too, which is really cool. Where in Hokkaido is it? In the Seiko, between the two big mountains. Okay, is it out of the ground? 
I know it's not out of the ground. It's still almost through planning. It's a, it's called a super, it'll be a super tie resort. Oh, cool. I'm going to be there next week skiing. Uh, oh, oh, you are? Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's not out of the ground yet. I'd Darn. Well, I, it's really exciting. The timber, the, the timber skyscrapers that they're just me messing around with. And um, yeah, for, as a carbon capture and not a, a and just a strength perspective and from a renewable perspective, it's really exciting. The technology right. on something so old of timber right. building is happening. So it's, it's good luck with that one. I'll have to keep my eyes on that. So to keep the, to keep the, the Cambodians out of forest and busy that we're giving them seed money to grow bamboo, which so then they'll, that'll be their cash crops. Oh, wow. And then that, then we'll be able to turn that back into, uh, uh laminated timber and then that then we'll be using to build houses and see and reap and all the poor forest places in cambodia wow we'll have so to do win -win every way yeah we'll have to do like an uh an in-person on uh all the shintamani projects in cambodia in the at some point in the future so i'd love to hear more about that um cool bill uh, last question so growing you grew up in anaheim you went to school in boston you chose the path of architecture, correct? Yep. If the bill I'm talking to now magically appeared in front of student bill, what advice do you have for yourself? What advice? <laughs> Go to Thailand. <laughs> Fat sooner? Uh, well, actually, I went on the day, on my graduation day, I went the next day. <laughs> so, Oh, so you, you followed your advice. Yeah, you're, li you're living your dream. Yeah, I'm living my dream. Yeah. What, what else would I have told myself? I wouldn't have lived. Yeah, I wouldn't have changed if I went to bank. It wouldn't change very much. No. Hmm. Well, good. Yeah. You're, I, I, well. I got here, and, and within five days, I met my partner. Wow. And and he is, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me. And and we get along like a house on fire 35 years later. Wow. Burning down the house from Bangkok. <laughs> well, you're you're in the you're in the tropics and I'm in the middle of a nor'easter with snow just pouring down and I have to go uh fire up the old snowblower to get the driveway open. Oh jeez. Um, but this has been wonderful and I I Bill seriously um I'm a huge fan like whether you realize it or not, you've impacted some really incredible memories with uh, me, my wife, my kids that will just always are just indelible. Um, so you've and you've impacted so many others, countless in in really meaningful ways. Um, so I just want to thank you for your time and just getting to know you. And hopefully, it's the beginning of a of a nice long relationship. Um, if people wanted to learn more about you or Shintamani Foundation, or Bensley Studios, what's what's the best way for them to do that? Um, yeah, uh, to learn more about uh, my studio is, is look up bensley.com. I mean, that's the Correct. easiest thing. And Shintamani Foundation. And, and my the, the hotels are all, if you just Google Shintamani, it all comes up. Perfect. Uh, and we'll put all that in the show notes. I'll also put links to the the books in the show notes. And this has been really wonderful, Bill. I know how busy you are and I know the time difference. So thank you for putting yourself out there to all of our listeners and, um, and impacting me in another positive way. So 
Thank you. You're more than welcome. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. Uh, without you, I wouldn't be here talking to these incredible people. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, please pass it along if this helped you think a little bit differently about hospitality. Thank you.